0: Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation, on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, The novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective, Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she had millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where. But that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now... Part 5 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation Chapter 12 Nate woke up Sunday morning well past the time his alarm would have normally roused him. Madge was on the bed, licking his ear. He pushed her away and checked the clock, noting that the alarm was set, but he had apparently slept through the insistent buzzing for whatever period his clock decided was long enough. He thought back to the day before. Jennifer had expressed her concerns about his reaction to the situation with his mother, and the failing business that Rainy Day Investigations was turning out to be. In the beginning, he thought he would welcome the presence of Jennifer and her staff, but a trio of college kids shuffling around his house, leaving messes in their wake, was not the same as a bustling bullpen of police officers. Jennifer was right. He missed the job, and it ate at him more than he was willing to admit. The physical exertion from the previous day's cleaning had also taken its toll. With Jennifer's help, he was able to get the house back to a level of cleanliness it hadn't seen since before her crew had arrived. He had taken an extra pain pill that night and had a vague recollection of waking with a dull ache and needing an additional couple of pills to get back to sleep. That was likely why he had slept through his alarm. Nate went through his morning routine, appreciative of the fact that he was alone. Most days, either Emily or Dave or both were already there, eating Hot Pockets and whatever else they could find. In truth, he really didn't mind having them around. He imagined it was like when he would visit his Uncle Bill and Aunt Lily in this very house. Lillian would be sitting at the kitchen table, sipping at her morning tea, while a houseful of kids helped themselves to heaping bowls of sugary cereals, jam laden slices of toast, and large tumblers full of orange juice and chocolate milk. Now it was his turn. Only the children were college students, and a quirky parapsychologist, with more energy than he could remember any of those cousins having, He fed Madge, then took a large cup of heavily creamed coffee and a freshly warmed, lightly buttered croissant to the living room, where he turned the television to the final day of the week's golf tournament. He wasn't really a big fan of golf and rarely played, but he needed something sedate and lacking of drama to wind down his week. Normally, he would be dressed by now, but today he felt like lounging about in his pajama pants and t-shirt, enjoying the peace and quiet and solitude. The channel changed to a local Sunday morning talk show. Bits plopped down on the sofa. "'Where did you come from?' Nate asked. Bits ignored the question and answered a different one. It was a frustrating habit of his. "'Isn't it time for that TV show the doc is on today?' Nate remembered Jennifer telling him something about being interviewed on a local Sunday morning show, promising it would drum up some paying business for their struggling enterprise. Bits popped open a can of Red Bull and tore through one side of the wrapper on a granola bar, Nate watched each crumb that escaped when Bits took a bite from the crunchy snack fall to the freshly cleaned couch and drop into every crack and crevice. He put it out of his mind and decided to ignore Bits, just pretend he wasn't there. The show was hosted by a popular local news anchor, Hannah James, and was a traditional casual show on a set that consisted of a couple of chairs, a small table, and a plant. The anchor smiled as the theme music wound down. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Sundays with Hannah. I'm Hannah James. Obviously, Bits commented. This morning, my guest is Dr. Jennifer Day, professor of anthropology at Cal State East Bay and a parapsychologist. The shot widened to encompass both women. Jennifer was wearing her usual wardrobe with the addition of a stylish jacket, her bright red Vans sneakers conspicuous on the wide shot. Her hair was pulled back, tucked into a low bun, and her ever-present sigh pendant hung around her neck. The TV station's makeup artist had obviously had a go at her. She was wearing more cosmetics than Nate had ever seen her in before, but it was subtle enough that she still looked like herself. Did I get that right? Hannah asked. Yes, Hannah. Thank you for having me on the show, Jennifer replied. That's quite an interesting combination, Hannah remarked. Well, from my point of view, it's not an unusual pairing at all. A good portion of anthropology is the study of human cultures and their development. What's interesting to note is that every society— from the most primitive to the highly advanced, indulges in some belief in the paranormal. My focus on parapsychology through an anthropologist's lens is only natural. Or supernatural, Hannah added with her trademark smile. Jennifer grinned back. Nate wondered if they had scripted that introductory moment. Tell me, Hannah continued, what does a parapsychologist do? Is it anything like Ghostbusters? Nate cringed at the question. He had been around Jennifer long enough to hear that comparison made more times than he thought possible. But Jennifer took it in stride. Not quite. We're more interested in trying to capture evidence of paranormal activity with cameras and sensors and recording devices. You take photographs and videos of ghosts? No, though that is a popular misconception promoted by a lot of the ghost hunting TV shows. What we're looking for are changes in the environment that connect to what a person is experiencing data that supports that they may actually be witnessing a ghost. Any luck? Yes, Jennifer answered brightly. We have a large amount of evidence gathered by my team and other paranormal investigators. Why haven't we heard more about it, then? Well, to be honest, it's not quite as exciting as getting slimed by some mischievous spirit. There's a lot of evidence that our minds, or at least some aspect of them, can tap into a perception that transcends our physical senses and allows us to experience more than what we see and hear in our everyday lives. That form of perception, which people have called the sixth sense, is not something we're able to replicate with a camera. So even though people see apparitions, it's not necessarily a vision that they're processing with their optic nerve, but rather a psychic impression being shared to their minds by the disembodied spirit. Since a camera is just a mechanical object, it can't perceive the world the same way a receptive human mind can. So do you believe in the soul? Hannah asked. In a way, Jennifer replied, but we use the term consciousness. What about heaven and hell? That's a little too theological for me. Where do you draw the line? Isn't the concept of a soul part of religion? It is and it isn't. I think what form an afterlife might take is pure speculation. Let me play devil's advocate for a moment. If everyone has a soul, sorry, consciousness, and that consciousness persists after death, Wouldn't the Earth be absolutely overrun with billions of people who have died throughout history? Well, you're assuming they're all bound to Earth. It's a big universe. Maybe the afterlife endows our consciousness with the ability to transcend our existence here to something bigger. However, some may not want to transition. They may feel they have unfinished business or are even afraid to move on. Those are the ones some people experience. I was reading in your book that there's actually a difference between ghosts, poltergeists, and hauntings. I thought they were all basically the same thing. Well, the terms are used somewhat interchangeably, but they technically describe three different phenomena. Really? So, what is the difference between them? Let's start with what we think of as your typical ghost. Many ghosts do appear to us as apparitions, but what makes them different from a haunting is that we can interact with them to varying degrees. Some apparitions like to talk to us. Some like to appear to us. And some can do both if a person is especially receptive. A haunting, on the other hand, is more like a recording of an event, something that leaves a powerful psychic impression. So it's like a movie? Hannah observed. Pretty much. It might be tied not only to a place, but a certain time of day. Or it could be associated with an anniversary of some kind. But you can't talk to a haunting. Now it'd be like trying to have a conversation with Humphrey Bogart while watching Casablanca. So that leaves poltergeists which we believe aren't associated with spirits at all, and are more closely tied to living people who are exerting an unrealized psychic ability on their surroundings. Marcia and Greg sat on their sofa watching the Sundays with Hannah show. Daisy was playing in the yard and Danny was up in his room, creating the next edition of his comic book about Eric the pirate. Greg had been doing some research on the internet looking for some answers about what was going on with Danny, and came across the website of a parapsychologist who taught anthropology. She seemed to approach the topic from more of a scientific point of view rather than a spiritual one, and he knew Marcia would be more at ease with that. He was particularly excited to see a media alert at the top of her website about her appearance on a local television show. He convinced Marcia to watch the program with him. She was reluctant at first, but Greg made all sorts of ridiculous promises, and she eventually relented. On the television, Jennifer completed her explanation of the distinction between different paranormal phenomena. Hannah zeroed in on the ghosts. So the apparitions are actually dead people we can see and hear, she asked. Jennifer nodded. Yes, though, to be specific, it isn't the actual person, just the psychic aspects of them. And are they still them? I mean, do they remember who they are without without their bodies, their brains? Jennifer finished. Well, I guess I'm wondering how that works, Hannah explained. I mean, our memories are in our brains, and when we die, don't our thoughts just stop? But what is consciousness? What are our thoughts and memories? We know the brain uses electrical chemical signals, but what consciousness actually is, what our minds are, is widely argued across many fields of science. Even how memory works is still up in the air. So who's to say consciousness cannot itself survive the death of the body? There's a lot of how it works that we can only guess at, but since the apparitions we do have evidence of can recall memories of their corporeal lives, and the personalities seem not to have changed, The evidence supports a mechanism for survival. Hannah nodded. So you're starting with a hypothesis and searching for the evidence that proves it. Or disproves it, Jennifer added. If there's some other explanation, some other theory that explains the phenomenon I've researched and experienced myself, I want to know exactly what consciousness is. Do you think you'll ever prove your theories? To everyone's satisfaction? Well, I'm an optimist at heart. But there are still people out there who believe the Earth is flat. I hope that someday technology will evolve to allow us to capture irrefutable proof of the paranormal. Until then, I'm going to work to continue to expand our understanding of psychic phenomenon and consciousness in general. Hannah shifted in her seat as she changed the gears in the conversation. So that brings me to your website. I was reading through some of your case studies and I was surprised to find that you listed just as many, if not more, incidents that turned out not to be paranormal at all. Yes, I think it's helpful for people to see that we really try to get to the bottom of the cases we investigate. I'm particularly interested in a case you looked into a few months back that was a big deal around here for a while. You helped solve a 60-year-old serial killer case. Well, usually the incidents we take on are not that dramatic. You were working with a police detective on that case? Yes, Detective Nate Rainey. There wasn't much in the papers about his involvement nor in the account on your website. I understand the case you solved was one that was originally investigated by his grandfather? It was his great-uncle, who was just a rookie at the time and happened to be on the scene when the man they thought was the killer had died. I wouldn't expect a cop to be, well, aren't they usually all, just the facts, ma'am? Jennifer smiled, thinking back to when she and Nate had first met and he was a hardcore skeptic. He still was, but she liked the way it forced her to think like him, to look at things from all angles and be prepared to counter his arguments. Oh, he's very much a skeptic, which is often the exact point of view our investigations require. I'm lucky to have him as a partner. How much of a partner? she asked, suggestively, raising an eyebrow with curiosity. A business partner, Jennifer explained. His experience as a detective is invaluable. All right, we'll leave it at that then. I want to talk more about some of your cases, but we need to take a break. Hannah smiled to the camera. We'll be right back. Commercial started playing and Greg hit the mute button on the remote. What do you think? he asked Marcia. I don't know, she said with a sigh. What if it's just a... A what? Greg asked. A phase? An imaginary friend? How do you explain that box of photos? He found it in the attic and invented a story around them. But you told me that he had described her and even told you her name before he found them. As far as we know, Marcia clarified. Greg looked at her challengingly. You honestly think he had been poking around in that attic for the last few weeks without us knowing about it? I think it's more likely than a ghost. You know what kind of imagination he has? Greg considered. She was right. Finding an old box of photos and making up a story about a woman who was featured in them would be something their ten-year-old would be capable of. But still, even if he had managed to get into the attic previously, how could he have managed to push the folding steps back up inside and close the door? You heard what she said about how they find out that a lot of their cases are not ghosts at all, he said. Marcia nodded. And she is a scientist, Marcia nodded again. And she works with a retired police detective who's probably more skeptical than you are, Marcia smiled. You really wanted to see if we have a ghost. It would be nice to rule it out, don't you think? I have ruled it out, she said. Okay, it'd be nice to have someone get it past my thick skull that we don't have a ghost just a very imaginative fifth grader. Marcia sighed. All right, but I don't want her putting Danny on her blog or website or anything. I agree completely, Greg assured her. Look, we send her an email, see if she's interested in looking into it, and if she is, we set the rules. She considered. What do we tell Danny? Greg shrugged. The truth, she's a ghostbuster. Marcia laughed. Let's go with she's a scientist. So you're okay with me reaching out to her? Greg asked. I'm okay with it, she assured him. The commercial break ended and Greg turned the volume back up and put his arm around Marcia as Jennifer continued talking about some of the more interesting phenomena she had investigated. At the top of the stairs, Danny sat with his legs poking through the gaps in the balusters. What's a parapsychologist, he asked Marine, pronouncing the words slowly. I'm not sure. Maybe someone who could help, Marine replied. Then she added, more for herself. Maybe someone who has answers. Do you really think she is a ghostbuster and wants to trap you and send you away? Marine wasn't sure if such a thing was possible. It was obvious that she had been dead for some time. She couldn't remember ever seeing things like the tiny computer screens Greg and Marcia kept with them that seemed to work like phones, too. And their TV was just a flat panel. She'd remember seeing something like it, but also remember that such things cost a fortune. But the foreman's didn't seem like they were very rich. Both of them worked and they had done almost all the remodeling themselves. The woman on the television seemed nice. She was a college professor, so maybe she did have some answers, and maybe Maureen would be able to talk to her as well as Danny. The truth was, she was just as curious as Greg to find out what she was and why she was here. I'm going to go work on my comic, Danny stated, then pulled his legs back and scurried off to his room. Maureen sighed, watching him skip back to his room determined to appreciate her connection to Danny no matter how or why it had come about or how long it might last. Chapter 13 Dave sat in front of the panoramic screen on Jennifer's side of the large wooden partner's desk. When he turned on the computer, the small badge on the icon for the email, as he was expecting, was showing over 200 messages waiting. He looked up over the screen at Detective Rainey, who was focused on something on the laptop on his side. Ever since the blow-up the previous week, Dave had been afraid to even set foot in the house, let alone do any work here. But he could understand why Detective Rainey was upset. Emily, Bits, and himself had taken his hospitality for granted. After the dean of the anthropology department had shuttled them from office to office, some of them little more than a cleared-out space in a basement, and that was one of the nicer ones, having a quiet place to work without fear of needing to move every day was a welcome change of pace. He resolved to be a better guest and to be more respectful of the retired policeman's hospitality. After all, Dr. Day's conflict with the dean could have just as easily ended with Dave losing his position as Jennifer's graduate assistant, and the tuition waiver and stipend that accompanied it. Dr. Day was pretty good on the Sundays with Hannah show, didn't you think? He asked, in as friendly a voice as he could manage. The detective acknowledged him with a grunt. Dave decided that was enough small talk for the day, and opened the email program on Dr. Day's computer. Evidently, the number on the icon hadn't been refreshed recently, as there were nearly twice as many messages waiting for him as he had been promised. Dr. Day had called in a lot of favors to get booked on the popular local show. She had done television appearances in the past, but usually it was for some Halloween puff piece, or a brief interview after one of her cases made the newspapers, or went viral on the internet. This was a long-form interview, the kind she excelled at, mostly because it was very much like the lectures for her Introduction to Anthropology course at the university, it gave her a chance to connect with her audience and share her enthusiasm. Her appearance was part of a concerted effort to find a case that could not only help pay the bills, but demonstrate that Dr. Day's partnership with Detective Rainey was viable. Despite the fact that she was engaged, once again, in an academic conflict with the dean, this time regarding a course she wanted to teach focusing on parapsychology, she was determined to prove to Nate that they could make a go of their joint venture, and that she and her staff were not just freeloading in his home. To that end, David set aside his own renewed efforts at making progress on his doctoral thesis to help her find a case that would achieve those goals. He started sorting through the emails, dropping many of them into folders based solely on the subject line. he had developed a knack over the years, working for Dr. Day, for separating the crazies from the people who were genuinely in need of her help. Are you doing the email? Emily asked. Dave and Nate both turned and looked toward Emily, who was standing in the doorway, her own laptop resting in the crook of her arm. Nate turned his attention back to his own work, ignoring the interruption. Yes, Dave answered. Are you here to help? Emily didn't answer with words. She responded by walking into the room, setting her laptop down next to Dr. Dave's computer and tapping a few keys. What are you doing? Dave asked. Emily rolled her eyes, sighed, and nodded toward the screen where Dave had been sorting emails. He looked at the program and was struck with a note of panic as he watched all the messages rapidly disappear from the inbox. What's going on? He asked. I haven't sorted those yet. How are you doing this? Relax, Emily replied. I'm running an AI app on Dr. Day's inbox to sort the incoming messages. I have a system, Dave protested. I know. It's based on your system. What do you mean? I've been training a machine learning algorithm with your choices of how to categorize the incoming emails from the website for the last few months. Dave started clicking through the folders he usually directed the incoming messages to, and sampled some of the messages in each. I set the confidence threshold to 99%, so you may see a few messages that aren't sorted. Dave looked at the badge and unread emails left in the main inbox. It was down to four. You created an artificial intelligence that sorts Dr. Day's incoming emails? Just the ones from the website. And it does it exactly how I would do it? Within 99%. And you've had it for months? Emily nodded. Then why have I been busting my butt to sort these emails every day? I told you I need to train the algorithm. Why couldn't you do that? I would sort emails like me, not you. And I know you prefer it done your way. Dave closed his eyes, and took a deep breath. Only when I have to do it over because you're so lazy. Exactly, and you're welcome. Emily snapped her laptop shut, turned, and left the room. Dave watched her go, then returned his attention to the email program. He couldn't decide whether to be angry at Emily for using him as her own personal lab rat or grateful that one of his most tedious jobs had been reduced to the click of a mouse. She doesn't make it easy to say thank you, does she? Nate asked. Hmm? Dave asked, engrossed in an email. We had a woman like that in the records room, a whiz on the computer, but treated us all like we were five-year-olds who were incapable of understanding anything she said. Drove me nuts, but she got the job done. Dave looked across the desk at Nate. Yeah, she's all that wrapped up in an annoying little sister. Nate laughed. I assume we're talking about Emily, Jennifer said from the doorway. She breezed into the office, dropping a collection of envelopes in front of Nate and stepping behind Dave to peer over his shoulder at the screen. Anything promising? And by promising you mean any that don't start with, I can't afford to pay you anything, but, Dave asked. Dave and Jennifer both glanced over at the desk at Nate, checking his reaction. Nate held up the envelopes Jennifer had dropped on his side of the desk, fanning them out like a poker hand. Got anything that beats a full house? Dave looked back at the screen. Millionaire whose wife recently died and is wondering if the psychic he hired is the real deal? Pass, Nate and Jennifer said in unison, recalling the event that had crashed Jennifer's academic career square into Nate's house. Dave continued scanning the list. Here's one. There's a family out in Danville who seems like they're not a total charity case. What's going on with them? Jennifer asked. They have a ten-year-old son whose best friend is the ghost of a woman who used to live in their house. Pass, Nate said. Pass, Jennifer asked. Dave went on. The father says the boy can see and hear the ghost, and she's told him things he couldn't possibly know. Imaginary friend. Internet. Nate replied. Next. Jennifer stood up straight, crossed her arms, and looked at the detective. Nate, I hate to be the practical one but we can't bill them if we don't actually investigate. You may be absolutely right, but we're not selling snap judgments. We're selling our best professional efforts, and hopefully peace of mind. He considered for a moment, setting the bills down on his side of the desk. He shifted them around with his fingertips. She was right, of course. He couldn't just dismiss every case out of hand without doing the work. The life of a private investigator was different from being a cop. As a policeman, he got the same salary no matter how long it took to clear the case. Now he needed to have clients, and generate billable hours, and ask for retainers. He could understand why Uncle Bill hadn't done it for very long. But for his great-uncle, it was more of a hobby, something to do after his retirement. Nate needed a new career, and if he wasn't willing to give this arrangement with Jennifer and her crew a serious effort, then what was he doing? At the very least, It would be more interesting and appealing than following cheating spouses and chasing down workmen's compensation fraudsters and spying on promiscuous dogs. Okay, Nate said. Let's do it. And make sure they know there's a fee involved. Get a retainer in advance. Jennifer smiled. She placed her hands on Dave's shoulders and leaned over to read the screen. Great. Let's email the foreman's and schedule a phone interview. Then start compiling any information we can find out about the town. Do they mention anything about how old they think the ghost is? Dave scrolled down. They found a box of photos in the attic. The Most recent ones go back about 15 or 20 years, give or take. Okay, find out what happened in that town 15 years ago, and let's see if we can connect any events of interest to this apparition. Jennifer checked her watch. I better get going. I'm going to be late for lunch with Eleanor, she said offhandedly. You're having lunch with my mother? Nate asked, surprised. We've been chatting. I think I can convince her to see a psychic friend of mine whom I trust. Great, more seances. He's not really like that, Jennifer assured Nate. Do you want to join us? She asked tentatively. Nate considered. It was a little strange to think that Jennifer was developing a better relationship with his mother than he had, but at the same time, he'd known his mother his whole life, and knew that it was still too soon to reach out to her. He'd apologize, but with everything else going on in his life, he didn't trust himself to be able to contain his emotions. That's all right. Maybe next time, he replied. Okay, Jennifer said with a reassuring smile. Then she looked back at Dave as he tapped the keys of the computer that sent the email to the office printer. I've got a good feeling about this case, she said. She turned back to Nate. It's all going to work out. You'll see. Nate watched her go, understanding that her words weren't just about the foreman's and their alleged ghost, but his mother as well. He glanced back over at Dave, who retrieved some pages from the printer and slipped them into a new manila folder. "'Well, I guess I'm off to Danville,' he said to Nate. "'Can't you do this research online?' "'Possibly, but I can only find online what there is online. "'A lot of these small-town newspapers don't have an Internet presence "'and don't have the resources to digitally archive all their old articles. "'Local library's the best place to start.' "'Want some company?' Nate asked. Dave froze in his tracks. It had never occurred to him that Nate would be interested in doing the type of background research Dave did. "'Um,' Dave stuttered. "'Okay.' Uh, that would be great. Nate smiled, aware that his offer both caught Dave off guard and made him a little uncomfortable. While you're paging through old newspapers, I can chat up the local cop shop. There's always someone there who knows everything that's ever happened and is happy to tell you all about it. Sounds good, Dave said. Do you want to take my car or I'm driving? Nate replied. He shut down the Sudoku puzzle he'd been solving on his computer and stood up from his desk. He slipped into the jacket draped over his chair and adjusted his tie. Road trip, he said, with a borderline maniacal smile. That was enough to kick Dave's anxiety into high gear. Chapter 14 Maureen never felt bored. Time passed in flashes, like she was skipping through it. Unless she made an effort to pay attention to what was going around her, she was like a leaf in the wind. When Danny was around, she sort of anchored herself to him. She enjoyed watching him play, either alone or with his sister. She wasn't sure if he could always see or sense her, and tried not to pester him when he was otherwise occupied. She didn't want to become annoying and risk losing their connection. He was at school now, but ever since she'd overheard the conversation between his parents, she didn't skip the time when Danny was away. She watched and listened to Marcia when she was home, read over her shoulder when she worked on her computer, listened to the radio and watched the television when it was on. Today, Marcia seemed engrossed in some work she was doing on the computer. Maureen had determined that she did something related to making websites, and from what she had seen, Marcia was good at it. Like most days, Marcia worked with the radio or television on in the background. Today, it was a television, and there was a midday news program playing. At first, Maureen didn't recognize the photographs that appeared on the screen. Then she realized it was herself. The report was telling the story of a bank robbery 15 years earlier. One of the thieves had been caught, but his partner had tried to make a run for it and was shot trying to escape. The story lit up memories for Maureen. She could remember that day, being in the bank vault, driving away, making it to the house. But it was only pieces, fragments with large gaps between them. The reporter went on to explain that the surviving robber had recently been released from prison. There was another photo on the screen. A name came to her. Dale. More memories came back in a flash. He was her husband. They were going to use the money to move and start a family. Then she died. She turned her attention back to the news story. The reporter was showing a photo of a bank in downtown Danville. The daring robbery was foiled when a young girl went missing in the middle of the night, flooding the area with law enforcement at a time when police presence normally would have been sparse. When the robbers triggered the alarm, one of them was caught in the bank while the second one managed to slip past police. She had taken tens of thousands of dollars in cash, as well as the high-value contents of dozens of safe deposit boxes. The money and goods were never recovered. Dale Everly insisted throughout his trial and incarceration that he had no idea where his partner had hidden them. Among the valuables stolen was a diamond necklace, valued at the time at nearly $10 million. Maureen didn't pay much attention to the words. She was focused on the photo of Dale that was now on the screen, He was older than the picture in her mind, but it was the same face. The graphic changed to an old photograph of a house. This house. It was from before the foremans had moved in, before they had painted the weathered exterior different colors and planted flowers in front of the porch. Before she realized what was happening, Maureen found herself on that porch. It was the first time she could remember being outside the house since... since the day she had died. She looked out over the front yard, The foreman's minivan was parked in the driveway. Then the minivan was gone, and it was a station wagon parked there. The flowers were gone now, too. The house was whitewashed, and the lawn was burned brown from a hot summer dry spell. There were police cars parked on the street, and officers streamed out of them, drawing their guns. It was like watching a movie trailer. She felt like she was seeing the highlights, enough to capture her interest. But it also felt like there was something missing, something important. There she is! A voice shouted, She's got a gun! Another voice warned. A shot rang out. Maureen could feel the wound in her chest. She looked up at the large oak tree that grew up against the house and remembered clinging to the branches near the attic window, then falling to her death.